I am Frank Zhao, and I'm the operator and the builder of Philippines. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over. Thank you, Frank. Thank you for coming on. What does it mean to be Vietnamese to you? It's many different things, and I'm proud to be one. We came from the hardest and the most disadvantaged, managed to survive in America. And we're doing good and well today. When did you come to the U.S.? And what was it like for you in the early days? I was one of those who um, left Vietnam on the last day of the war in 1975. What was it like for you when you first came here? It was facing the difficulty like any other uh, immigrants who came to America. But we came as a refugee. We were unprepared. And we have no idea what we were doing. We didn't even have any idea. Uh, what and where we're coming to. All we know is the U.S. We don't even know what the U.S. is. What did you end up doing in the early days? Finding a survivability. So I um, would go out and find any work. I practically arrived to the community on Sunday of early May. The next thing I do is to go out the next morning to a donor shop and have a cup of coffee and the first shop beginning right there by picking up a um, LA time and circling and call. And then I got my first job that morning. What was the first job? It was um, a, a, a job in uh, selling uh, vacuum cleaner. Wow. How much English did you have to go out and sell vacuum cleaners? Uh, I didn't have any language barrier. Then. Oh, wow. And I spoke English when I was uh, really very young. Well, I have no idea. All I'm trying to do is to um, make sure I have the food to put on the table and money to pay rent. So I uh, work very hard and um, sell is not something um, uh, new to me. Um, I was a, a sales representative <clears throat> for a major company uh, in Vietnam, um, many of them are representing U.S. company like um, Westinghouse, or mm. General Motors, and Union Carbide, so <laughs> selling their products. So I, I, I practically uh, uh, don't have m uh, much of a stranger to uh, uh, to the to the world of um, of sales. And so, how did you stumble upon? beginning the career of, of developing and operating these properties? Of course, my, uh, the job I took was temporary. And, uh, <clears throat> and then I transit from one job to another. Uh, then I end up mm, looking around, talking to job counselors, career counselor at the university mm, to get an orientation of what best to do. And the direction was look into real estate, so I did. And then I entered into real estate, beginning to prepare myself to enter into real estate. So within less than six months, um, I uh, obtained my real estate license and I go to work. Very fast for six months and beginning to get into the real estate game. Well, we uh, came from the background of a war and 
the uh, speed of the bullet is what we have to match with. Yeah. And we are familiar with that. And <laughs> when, when you started, did you think that because of your adversity that working was not going to be too difficult because, you know, the work ethic and, and the sort of the mindset that you had was probably already built in for you to create a successful life. My uh, sales background at home taught me one lesson. If you pick it right, do it right, get familiar with the product you handle, the product itself, more than 50% of the sale, and the rest of just talk and personality and luck. <laughs> and, and so you were working in real estate for a few years. When did you have the idea to create Full of Talk? I um, really am more and more Vietnamese come to Orange County and more and more Asian come to Orange County and look around at the history of immigrants in America that they all have their own common sharing, gathering, a common place, not only for food, but also for cultural gathering. So the idea that the Vietnamese need one too just came naturally. When you were setting out to do this mall, the naming of the mall is Asian Garden Mall, but we in the community know of it as Fukuoka. So which name did you kind of settle on and why Asian Garden Mall and not a Vietnamese name? The Vietnamese has a saying, as a business, you aim at the largest share of the market as you can. You can't say European shopping center, right? right? You can't say a Russian shopping center. So Asian is the only broader name than, than a Vietnamese shopping center you can get. And that's how Asian Garden, uh, Asian Garden came about. Because of the cultural distinction, part of the architectural motifs uh, of the center was stationed with the tree statue of uh, Philokta and uh, Happy Buddha. So uh, why come to um, why it become um, Philokta and Fevuolang because of the Philokta statue and people could care less about what you call your shopping center is and your name is, they go by how you look. If you're a fat man, they call other fat men. So it's Fuglokta, then it become, they call the center is Fuglokta, then it become Fuglokta. So they control the audience, not the audience, the customer and the public control what that name is. So we follow. So the name wasn't originally Fuglokta, it was Asian Garden Mall, and then the three statues dictated the naming afterwards. Exactly, how you look. We, as a family and as a community of Vietnamese youth, I was born here in the U.S., and to be able to go to the Asian Garden Mall as we were growing up throughout the 80s and 90s and 2000s was a very special time for all of us. We all remember it. And did you think that the impact that you had on the younger generations was going to be such a, an iconic situation? 
Well, the if you grew up in the U.S., I'm sure uh, you have some of those feelings that you wonder what you are, who you were, and who you are. And everybody look for their identity. And having a shopping center, a, a gathering place, it um, resembling uh, your culture, uh, your root, and your language uh, is, a, is, is probably the most ideal place that you would like to come to and enjoy. When we look up Little Saigon in Wikipedia, which is a place where you can go to find information on anything in the world, and you type in Little Saigon, in the facts that you read about, it has your name as one of the pioneers and Bakyan Kwak from uh, the pharmacies as two of the pioneers of Little Saigon. Do you feel like at the time, what you did was something so revolutionary? Well, we do is something special, something right to do, and something could become very significant. However, uh, if you ask me if I have any idea that it would be like today, uh, I would say no. There is a lot of people living in Little Saigon. I think uh, the last numbers in 2011 census was around 200,000, close to 200,000. It's probably a little bit more today, I think, after a good 10 years. What have you seen uh, throughout the development of that time um, in terms of the direction of the community? How do you feel like it's grown into? Do you feel like we're that we've headed in the correct path? of a community or are there things that you say that can be improved a lot more in terms of community cohesion? Well, we do, we were in the right direction, but it could have been a lot better in a lot faster, but we have to leap with what God gave to us and the characteristic and the nature of our people that determined that. What are the characteristics that you think didn't allow for us to speed up faster? I know it's a very hot subject, but I would love to get your, <laughs> I would love it, to get it, your thoughts. <laughs> I don't mean, I don't, I'm not looking for criticism or, or jijit. I, I really, the, a lot of the times I think about like German communities or Japanese communities or, Jewish communities, and I reflect back on Korean communities, and I think back on the Vietnamese communities, and to ask somebody like you, which is a, who is a veteran of our community, a pioneer of our community, it's not I'm asking for anything bad. I just really am curious, what could we have done in the last 50 years to perhaps, you know, looking forward, what are the things that we as a community need to think about? Collectively, as a community, as a group, we do more wrong than right. But we have our own strength, our own positive and superiority thinking in our mind. 
we are working very hard, we're very aggressive, we're very creative, and then each individual are super competitive. So because of all of that, it takes over the weakness at the beginning that I thought as a group. So individual has made Little Saigon. No one single person make Little Saigon. Yeah. You got involved early on in something called the Vietnam Education Foundation. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got involved with the idea of education in Vietnam? I would say in anyone's mind, in the U.S. at that time, even today, that we're so lucky to be in America with all of the wonderful things that we enjoy. And if we have a chance, an opportunity to help our, you know, friends and our relatives and our people in Vietnam, we would try to do so. So the opportunity of uh, being appointed to the Vietnam Education Foundation is a wonderful opportunity uh, for me to be able to do something and using that enormous resource uh, power and financial strength to do so uh, is something you cannot find anywhere else. So I, I jumped at it right away when the idea was floated to me of being appointed uh, to the foundation. What, what exactly is the mission and the directive of the Vietnam Education Foundation? Well, it's good to understand that the foundation was only an idea uh, uh, passed by the Congress uh, to help educated Vietnam scholar in their transition from central economy to market economy. So the commission, the idea was there, the uh, legislature was there, the funding was made available, but the organization was not exist. So that the vision of the US government and the Congress of appointing a group of people to come together and using all of those ingredients that provided to form a, a Vietnam Education Foundation to exercise and to carry out the duty of the vision uh, that Congress and the US government have provided. Now, with all that being said, how do you feel that the education of Vietnamese scholars and people in Vietnam is progressing? Well, they're pro progressing overwhelmingly well. At the beginning, you have a group of um, well-educated technician expertise to go home and do it. Uh, at the beginning year, uh, the environment was not ready. The government was not ready. Uh, for those talent to be used. In other words, if you know how to drive a, um, a, a jet, you don't have a jet to drive, you drive a bicycle. So, <laughs> so it wastes a little bit of time at the beginning 
But as Vietnam progressed, everybody come back to the right courses, the opportunity. And I found uh, the number of people we trained over 600 uh, to 650 uh, members. They all are contributing, contributing uh, very, very uh, um, uh, strong and very, uh, very, uh, uh, very good for the economy and for the growth of um, Vietnam, as you can see Vietnam today. You know, the reason I asked you about this is because I feel like the generation of my parents oftentimes don't understand the progress that's being made in Vietnam. A lot of young people in my generation, as a result of not really being in touch with the motherland as much, are not aware of the education process and progress that's that's happening in Vietnam. As a result of both in-country and people like you on the outside, Imja, supporting the people that are on the inside. Um, is that true? Well, the idea of um, sharing uh, resources and progress uh, is in the mind of any human being. So is uh, Vietnamese is not uh, excluded. And if, if, if in any way, we have more than that than a lot of people, uh, other people do. So we need to give ourselves the credit for doing so. And despite of all of the progress, uh, all of the accomplishments today, it is the people that make that, not the government. I have to say, and I, I experience it myself uh, in Little Saigon, in much um, characteristic, it is the same way. Yeah, because if we don't have this thinking in the U.S. in Little Saigon that Vietnam is actually progressing with academic freedom, because I do know that there's a lot of academic freedom that's happening in Vietnam right now as a result of many people's efforts. If we don't come to grips with that, we are in denial that Vietnam is progressing along with the progression of the international community. It's not behind much because people are very focused on building the economic education infrastructure. At that notion, if you ask any educator, the economic academic freedom is non-exist, but the academic uh, the freedom of education is exists in a in a very big way. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, that makes sense. Academic okay. freedom does not exist entirely, but the freedom to go get an education exists. Now, why doesn't academic freedom exist? Well, it's it's it uh, it conflict with politics and conflict with governing. And is there initiatives from something like the Vietnam Education Foundation to reverse that? Uh, I think it bring to the degree of awareness of how important it is. But um, if you say they have um, impact and make that um, uh, go the other way, uh, I wish it was. Yeah. And the reason I bring up this stuff is because I think we lead into the next sort of chapter of your life right now. 
can we talk about um, like this global Vietnam war studies uh, that I know that you're part of? <laughs> that's, that's another interesting subject. <laughs> yeah, is, um, is it comfortable for you to talk about? Well, why not? We're in, we are in America. And, and no matter where we are, this is the, the subject of history right. and reality. And we're, we're not in politics and we're not aiming at uh, any uh, go and objective um, on uh, linking the politics into it. Right. So saying all that, uh, many years ago, after Sato at least, you know, 10 years in the U.S. and have a little bit of room, maybe a few minutes a day uh, to think of reality and of life, yeah, out of the, the work that we have to do to um, support our life, it came to my mind that history has always been written by the winner uh, or the sinner, whatever you may want to call them to be. <laughs> <laughs> So who is identified, who is the winner? Of course, on the surface of it, the Vietnamese government today is the winner. And who is the much bigger winner without being so much identified and uh, hidden uh, under the sophisticated world uh, of the uh, colonialism? It's the US. So to speak. That the US. The US win in a very big way. They win it globally. So, and it has to be written fit their, the, what they have done and how they have done. Otherwise, it wouldn't be serving to them when I say them is two, not one. So it, I thought it was very important for somehow, some way, uh, even those we don't have any uh, means or any resources of making it become awareness uh, and, and, and clear, we should do our best. That's why I funded a first, uh, in the early year 2000, I, uh, I funded a first effort to write a uh, oral uh, of Vietnam history at the UCI. So UCI carried that and make it and put it in their library into their uh, academic uh, put, put there into their archive. Uh, then slowly, I think further, and I didn't think that's enough. That's haven't given enough impact. So when I accidentally was contacted by Harvard University Kennedy School a couple of years ago. I thought that was a wonderful opportunity to renew that. That's why I encouraged them to do it. And I joined them uh, in the initiative of doing so. Now, and it is very, very important for people to understand what exactly that we're doing. So the first thing we need to do is seeking facts from truth. All of the recorded historical uh, records by either side, I would say, generally uh, are, the, are the truth. Uh, now, 
that the truth of the truth is different than the truth itself. So I come, I borrow the quote uh, uh, of a scholar at Harvard, uh, Tony Say, Dr. Tony Say, seeking fact from truth. And that's all this initiative is about. To prevail and reveal, I make it, you know, take as much longer to, to, to explain this, but I'm going to say it very short uh, and we can go from there uh, either now or I would say later on. Uh, uh, basically, uh, yes, in uh, seeking fact from truth would prevail one crucial thing is the Vietnamese. On the north or the south, neither of them have any control of Vietnam War. So if you look at it this way, from the simple-minded of a strict person like myself, okay, how did Vietnam War start it? It started by a fishing boat, okay, that attacked the U.S. fleet in Tonkin Go. Right? That's how it started. Right. So when it's ended, where did it end? It, it didn't end it in on on Kong Lee Street at the um, palace. Uh, uh, at the Independent Palace, it didn't. It ended February 1972 on the table uh, on, on on a on a peace signing table in Shanghai, and I didn't see any Vietnamese. Uh, even in the neighborhood. Wow. So it started not by, by the Vietnamese, right? And it ended not by the Vietnamese. How do you call it a Vietnam War? So wait, the boat, the fishing boat was a Vietnamese fishing boat or another country's fishing boat? Well, it was told as a Vietnamese fishing boat. Now, anybody have any common sense would say, how can you take a, a, a fishing boat and hit the U.S. Navy fleet. Come on. Hmm. Does that make sense to you? But that's what it was. That's, that's called historical facts. So you got to seek truth, and you have to seek the fact from truth. Wow, this is uh, a new revelation for me. Because, I mean, this doesn't make any sense at all that there's no real Vietnamese involvement you know from that boat to the signing in shanghai in 72 you didn't started it and you didn't ended it uh, how, how can you say your war are you implying that there was business on the back end to move around weapons to move around arms to to sell things and just use Vietnam as a backdrop to move weapons around and make sales? Well, I, I wouldn't want to go too far from there uh, simply because you look at the uh, capitalist, capitalism and the communism, the two block ideology block of the world and that's their war, it's not a Vietnam war. And the Vietnamese is only being conveniently used as the point of rendezvous for the 
for the, you call it the ambition or the love they wanted to make to one another. And Vietnam to me was only uh, a, a subchapter of that underneath that have no control of it. It didn't start it, it didn't end it. So why are we looking at one another, either North and South or the ideology of the Vietnamese in two, two groups that we hate each other so much that we didn't start it as somebody started it for us. Yeah. And we, we just jump into and play things. So isn't that like a boxing ring? There are two boxers who was organized and placed again on the, the boxing ring to do the boxing. The, they, they were fighting very hard and genuinely, they were doing very well, both sides. But at the end of the day, should they hate one another? Should they or should they not? What does the Global Vietnam War Studies seek to do in terms of timeline? Is it trying to produce a report? Is it trying to initiate some initiation of a legislation or a official sort of statement from the U.S. government after this is all brought to light? What is the purpose of organizing the Global Vietnam War Studies? I think it's none of those. The only thing I think the initiative wanted to do is to look into the truth of historical recorded and point down the facts of the truth. That means at the end of the day, the truth of the truth. So the victim and party involved further understand at death, leading to reconciliation by themselves, by the reader, not, not by what Harvard would say. And if you can reconcile those facts, then you think very differently. Yeah. The community and once you process those facts, then the healing, self-healing beginning to occur within oneself after the awareness of the facts. How do we get... And yeah. at the end of the day, you ask, what is that for? Two things. The world needs to know a little better what it is. Not let alone the Vietnamese have to know it very, very, very clearly. And with all that, it rec- as I said, it, rec- it, it lead to healing, self-healing and group healing and national healing. Uh, above and beyond that, it give the world, it give mankind, that the next time you have a conflict, can you look into uh, the possibility of not creating so much uh, destructive of life, uh, disaster, and atrocity for the serving Serbian nation who serve your boxing ring so you can uh, enterprise <laughs> your sport event. When will the studies be finished? 
is a five years study uh, documentation. We are already a little over a year into it uh, with the pro progressing that we have right now. I would say it wouldn't take five years to do that. It probably uh, a lot less yet to be determined on the next move in progress because Harvard is looking at it. But saying this statement is my personal belief, not officially uh, uh, <clears throat> contradicting anything that Harvard have in the book. Do you think the young Vietnamese people in our community today have a easier time of accumulating success compared to the years in the 70s and 80s when we first came to the, US, to the United States? Do you think it's easier or harder to accumulate wealth, money, success, knowledge? It should be much easier. Uh, the second generation is, first of all, born here, get education here. So they're not stranger to the country. Secondly, they grew up in the environments, so they don't have uh, the intimidation of an immigrant. Uh, last but not least, not only the environment is different, uh, America uh, is much more of a diversity today than it was in 1975 when the first generation come to America. Uh, we were looking uh, at a species of liability that invade into the community of the American society. And the de degree of discrimination back in those days was so much higher. And there's so much hurdle that the first generation have to face, not only because of the environment, the culturally different, the unpreparedness, uh, and the, the strangeness uh, to uh, the new society that they landed in is very, very, very different. But the drive of the second generation is very different than the drive, the ambition of the first generation. Well, the, the, the um, survivability and self-sustaining among the Vietnamese and the Vietnamese community is, can be recorded as the highest ever in the American um, uh, immigration, uh, history of immigrants. I uh, recently went over to Fukuoka and I saw a wonderful store ran by a good friend of mine now. Uh, his name is Chris. And he credits you with helping set up the little Saigon merchandise store. And I think it was so wonderful that you're supporting what he's doing. And what he's doing is creating a, a brand for Little Saigon. Why do you think that it's taken this long for somebody to come along to brand Little Saigon? Why didn't it happen 10, 20 years ago? What he does require a, a much more of cultural awareness ideal uh, in the mind and sunken into the uh, cultural need and then the environment provide a sustainability. Uh, 20 years ago, 
there will be nobody walk into his store because the fresh, for first of all, people are mining food on the table before they are mining food for the brain. And what he does is food for the brain. I, I don't think there was a sustainability back in those days. And today, now that you already have a house, you have a car, uh, you have a job, you have uh, saving money in the account, now all your brain us on a sudden uh, click in and thinking uh, of something a little more fancy than just food. But I also want to speak to the idea of identity pride. We didn't have that maybe 20 years ago. You would, if you saw those products, you probably wouldn't buy it because you just didn't have the, the pride in Little Saigon. You're right. Not, not only that, the, as I said, the first generation that came to America, uh, the war and anything having to do with Vietnam War was very negative to them. And they don't want to think about it. Yeah. They, 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 they rejected it because that's bad memory. And today, uh, you can see 70% of the Vietnamese American in Orange County uh, are second generation. There are less than a third of those who came on the first generation. Right. Survivability. So the market is at the 70%, less of the 30%. And now all of a sudden, the 30% have a wake-up call. As we go into the new year, I want to wish you more strength, more power, more health physically. And I want to also thank you for coming on to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I, I, I do what I can fill in the vacuum of what I see. Uh, beyond that, I know I am a time capsule. And we are happy to have you. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank you. Once again, Frank, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Wynn. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran. Special thanks to Jane Wynn, Catherine Wynn, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcast. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.